Good afternoon. Welcome to the Eco News Report. I'm your host this week, Annie Maher, Programs Coordinator at the North Coast Environmental Center. The Eco News Report is an exclusive feature of KHSU, brought to you by the North Coast Environmental Center, publisher of our regional environmental newspaper, Eco News. Don't forget, you can find this show and other KHSU public affairs shows on the audio archives page at khsu.org. Today, my guest is Chris Peters, President and CEO of the Seventh Generation Fund. Thank you for being on the Eco News Report today. Thank you. So this April marked the 30th anniversary of the G.O. Road. Is it Go Road or G.O. Road? It's Go Road, and, and we, we phrased it no-go because Go Roads implies a little bit of progression and forward thinking. So the 30th anniversary of the no-go road. <laughs> a road originally scheduled to run from Gasky to Orleans, hence the name G.O., in order to permit timber harvesting in the Six Rivers National Forest. The road would have run through high countries sacred to members from the Karuk, Talawa, and Yurok tribes. The story of the road and why it was, was never finished has become infamous. Today we have Chris Peters, President and CEO of the Seventh Generation Fund and Vice Chair for the Parliament of the World's Religions and Plaintiff for the No-Go Road case. So thank you for being on the show. Good. Well, thank you for having me. So this is a long story, and why don't you tell us how it began with the Forest Service beginning planning for the road in 1963? Well, the, the Forest Service initiated a planning process that was in phases. And unfortunately, there was never a full-blown environmental review of the total road or even the direction of the road. And early on, you know, in the, in the early 1960s, not very many Native people were looking at publications of the Forest Service and what they intended to do. So it was off the radar chart, if you will, for a lot of Native communities. And gradually, the filing of environmental reviews happened in sections and crept up on both sides toward the high country. We didn't really understand what was happening until the late 60s, possibly. And actually, there was an anthropologist that was more into looking at timber harvest plans and his name was Arnold Pillings. Dr. Arnold Pillings did a lot of work with Native communities and first discovered, hey, this is going through the high country, and began to sound alerts within Native communities, primarily traditional communities in and around Wetchbeck, Pequon area, where he focused most of his work. So it wasn't until the late 60s that this began to get on the radar. Yeah, yeah. Initially, it was just a high-level, high-grade road going from Orleans to Gascade. We didn't know the direction, and we didn't have any awareness of the other side. We only focused on what was happening from the Orleans side up, and then realized, hey, they're, they're building two roads, and they will come together that will devastate the, the sacred area of the high country. You know, Dr. Rock, Chimney Rock, Peak 8, Little Medicine Mountain, Elk Valley, all of which were really significant in the epistemologies of, of local tribal groups, primarily Kadaruks and Yuroks, Toloas on the other side a little more, but it would have an impact that was far-reaching. And had important ecological benefits as well, that area, correct? Oh, definitely. You know, I think the ecological benefits, and that brought in a lot of a lot of folks. I mean, the late Tim McKay was, was instrumental in the whole process from the very beginning a named plaintiff in the case, and, and pretty much raising issues of the, the instability of the direction of the road, the, the sliding potential, the, you know, a whole wide range of just shale rock, and, and the, the direction of the road would produce more, more damage to the ecosystem than, than the road would, would benefit people. So 
As far as the timeline of this battle and the legal battle all along the way, what were some of the important points for for this for this fight? Well, you know, there's there's certainly the legal points that are significant, but I think sort of the cultural point is the awareness building. You know, Native peoples through a period of of settler colonialism in Northern California, white supremacy, if you will, that dominated Native thinking for centuries after the gold rush and the the devastation caused by the gold rush, our our population was was decreased in Northern California and throughout California about ninety percent of folks that were just literally massacred and and done by white citizens of Northern California. There was no military conquest. It was sort of friends and neighbors, if you will, forming vigilante groups and going out and, and killing Indians. And at the time, much of that history involved the state, the state of California, the federal government, paying for scalps of Native people. I mean, the city of Arcata, downtown Plaza, was an auction place for Native peoples to be auctioned off to non-Native people to purchase. I mean, children, if you will. You know, real small children were auctioned off. You know, the most devastating, you know, in Northern California, we have a tradition of the women painting their chins, 111. That itself would bring a bounty. So women's chins were cut off, and that could be turned into a bounty. So much of all of this area here in Arcata was the site of significant massacres. Not so distant past. You know, the scalps were still paid for at the turn of the century, 1900s. You know, so it's not, a, it's not so far removed, my grandmother's ear, you know, so it's still fresh in a lot of people's mind. Anyway, the progress of the Go Road, I guess, is sort of an awakening again, that we were moving away from the threat of, of the massacres and our spiritual leaders, our thinkers, our philosophers were, again, having the freedom to be able to look around and say, hey, this is where we're situated. What do we do about it? And all of a sudden, the Go Road case erupted, you know, the plan to, to devastate the ability for Native peoples to actualize a spiritual belief system. And that ability impacted ceremonial life, impacted the traditions and philosophies of local Native tribes. What, it, what was wrapped in the Go Road was probably the final phase of cultural and spiritual genocide, and it was being perpetrated by the federal government. Given, you know, the understanding that Native peoples were acculturating pretty rapidly, and we were saying, no, we're not. We're still here. We want, we want to understand who we are. So what grew out of that was more of a, an identity movement, if you will, more so than any other thing that we had. You know, I think, strangely enough, you know, there was another Supreme case that was parallel to the Go Road, and that was the Jesse Short case. And the Jesse Short case argued in the American judicial system that we were Indians of a reservation and didn't have an identity primarily to have access to dollars. That case, and along with the, the Go Road case, was the direct opposite. 
we contended that we had a religious belief system, and that religious belief system dated back till time immemorial. The other case says, no, we, we lost our identity, we were not Indians, and we were just running wild on the reservation and were a part of a major, bigger reservation system, primarily for timber sales, you know, primarily. So that was a concern. A lot of the community organizing that were happening at the time, you know, was was discouraged by plaintiffs of the Jesse Short case. We couldn't organize a an, a strong opposition. Why was that? I think it was the the domination of people, if you will, for economic gains. So even some of the people were concerned that they signed up for the Jesse Short case and were reluctant to say, "Hey, we had an identity worth pursuing." And major scoldings from folks and plaintiffs of the other case and coming down to the community for asserting an identity again. We couldn't assert ceremonies, if you will, because that would be against the direction that that the Jesse Short case was taking. And it seems like that belief that this land was integral to Native culture and religion in that area was supported by many of the court rulings up until the Supreme Court case ruling, including the, is it Theodoratus report? Yes. So it seems like that was supported by most people up until the Supreme Court ruling. Is that the case? I, I think, you know, not only the Dorothy Theodoratus report, but also other internal reports that were completed by the Forest Service personnel that basically advised the Forest Service not to construct the road because of its far-reaching damage to local native spiritual practices. And it continued anyway. And realizing that a law had to be clarified, if you will, that native peoples could assert a religious belief system that had the potential to stop extractive industry. And not only here, but throughout the United States. So that was at in question with the Go Road. All along, Congress was passing some good legislation, you know, taking you know, the American Indian Religious Freedom Act. It turns out to be a policy statement and not, not significant among to have an impact in a court system. The California Wilderness Act, of course, was, was a significant act that set aside all of the area and the process. The, the, the historic places, you know, and the designation of the area as a historic place was also happening in, in major push of people to, to, to recognize the, the historic significance of the area. So all of that was, was as the Go Road case was happening. But the, the strong extractive industry, mostly mining, lobbying industry in interests. So it wasn't just lumber, it was also mining in the area? Oh, definitely. Lumber was, was on its way out, if you will. Oh, okay. And, you know, there's a lot of discussions around that with with uh, forest workers here and the, the brutality, actually, they were, were doing with the expansion of Redwood National Park at the time and other types of activities that were seen by the loggers as as impacting their way of life, when actually there was no more trees. I mean, you know, if it wasn't for the Pacific Ocean, they would have logged into China. But... <laughs> You know, that's just the nature of it. It was it was on a decline, you know, and, and as a result, we see it now, there is no forest industry. Commercial fishing was another 
strong opposition of Native people at the time that Indian gillnet fishing was, was somehow depleting the resources when, you know, it was historic logging practices, as people understand it to be the case now. But the apple cart, if you will, as long as Native people were suppressed and, and had no economic abilities to survive, then it was okay. But as the apple cart became turned upside down, where the forest workers were losing their employment, Indians were asserting fishing rights to sell salmon and benefiting financially. That was a disturbing situation for a lot of non-Native people in Northern California. It continues to be, you know, it continues to be to this day. Mm-hmm. So the Forest Service was told multiple times that this was going to be definitely so. harmful and yeah. continued to move forward. And of course, the final case was the is it Ling versus Northwest Indian Cemetery Protective Association? Yes, yes. And that was the final Supreme Court ruling? That was in 1988. Yeah, it was a long time ago. 30 years. But once the negative case came out, I mean, certainly the, the Ninth Circuit Court rendered a favorable opinion, and a lot of elders went down and testified the significance of the area. The Court of Appeals affirmed the lower court decision, and the Forest Service couldn't allow that to be a a precedent-setting case because of the impact it would have, not only in Northern California, but throughout the United States. So they were worried that if they lost this case, then that would set a precedent for other conflicts. Oh, it definitely would. Mm -hmm. It definitely would. And and if the Supreme Court would have ruled the other way, most of the Native sacred places Sometimes their their place of worship, their understanding of of their cosmology, their ability to to of self actualizing in terms of a spiritual connection to the earth would be rescued, would be saved. Unfortunately, most of the areas in the United States have been devastated. The case, as it turns out to be, was a sentence to forever lasting death. It was a major case, continues to be a major case. A lot of people don't acknowledge that. You know, and, and it's an ability that most non-Native people have. We, we say they're not intelligent enough to understand spiritual practices. There, there, there is a whole different paradigm that people are afraid to step into. And that paradigm allows for self-actualization, allows for a connection to the earth, and if that paradigm were to survive, we wouldn't have the destruction in the world today. And, and I think that's a key point in terms of environmentalism. You know, most of the environmentalists are dealing with policy issues, you know, like they're going to fix it somehow. They're dealing with, you know, different technologies to fix it. When what we need is a paradigm shift of thinking in how we look at the world and how we treat the world. And that's not happening. That could be as far from reality as we could possibly see. And we see San Francisco peaks. We see Badger 2 medicine area. We see Mount Taylor. We see, you know, Red Butte, the volcanoes in Hawaii, and a lot of other that were lost because of the go road. And, and even today that if a sacred lands case is fortunate enough to get into the American judicial system, the assertion of the precedent set by Go Road is brought forward. 
So, so you believe it did set a precedent for future cases? Oh, it's it set a dangerous, everlasting precedent. And as as American law tends to be, it sets an international precedence for the treatment of indigenous peoples. And you know, unfortunately, there's a there's a difference in terms of of spirituality which involves a little bit of, of experimenting and, and benefiting from something happening now. You go through an experience, and you're, you're aware of, made aware of different things, opposed to the dogma of religion, that at some point in time, way back 2,000, 3,000 years ago, somebody had a revelation. And, and since then, everybody is connected to that one revelation, you know, with, with native spiritual practices, revelations happen on an ongoing basis. You know, it's not restricted to one man who happens to be a saint or whatever, but it's anybody can do it. To allow that type of self-actualization to happen in American systems of capitalism, it would be devastating. It would, it would stop the world in its tracks and begin to spin it around a different way. And the American judicial system, the American government, could not allow that to happen. The economy is based on the capitalist idea that we drain all of the resources and we leave waste. And that's what the direction we're, we're heading, regardless of a relationship to a, a place, to an earth. Do you believe that's why, after so many people had supported the... Northwest Indian Cemetery Association up until the Supreme Court ruling that the ruling suddenly changed? Oh, I think the court systems were, were behind us. I think they, they understood what the impacts would be and, and understood, if you will, the First Amendment of the Constitution that allows us to do that. The ruling in the Go Road case is that the Constitution doesn't apply to us. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there, there is no provisions in the American Constitution to, to, to uphold our position that land is sacred. You know, so that, that whole decision is, and, and it would mean significant to not only Native people, but to other people who want to believe that, that a place is sacred. A place has intelligence. You know, a place is alive. The world is alive. Opposed to asserting that that there, there's only death, that it doesn't exist, there's no life out there, that, that man can dominate an ecosystem, man can dominate, you know, an animal, plants, and whatever that is there. It's a whole different concept. And unfortunately, that was lost. And 30 years after, people don't understand the impact of it and continue to, you know, raise their protest signs and marches down the street. But, you know, much of the water has already flown under the bridge, you know, and, and unless there's some major changes. And it doesn't matter if there's Republicans or Democrats in office. The decision stands. What will fix the Go Road decision is some type of legislation that will produce a cause of action to allow Native peoples in court again to litigate in the American judicial process the impacts of First Amendment protection. Right now, we don't. You know, we have a very narrow margin to get into the court system, not which is, is applicable to most places. 
So a place can be destroyed, can be devastated, can be logged, bulldozed, and spiritual people in that area have no litigative recourse. We can't, we can't file a lawsuit to stop that. And it's happening all over. But in the end, the road was not completed. And so do you want to tell us a little bit about how that happened? Well, in the end, you know, and, you know, I'm, I'm a conspiracy. <laughs> <laughs> After the California Wilderness Act was passed in 1984, there was a provision left in it because we were in a, an appeal status. The road stayed in outside of the Wilderness Act. So seven miles of road from where it stopped to where on HN through the, through the high country was left open. That the, the Forest Service could still construct the road. Mm-hmm. And most other areas, and up to that point in time, in most cases where religious freedom is, is asserted, there's a public benefit test. Does the American public, does the, the Forest Service have enough justification to prove that there is an overriding public benefit that would be more superior than the taking of a religion. I don't think there is, but as long as they had trees to cut, that was still asserted pretty aggressively. We have an overriding public benefit for jobs. Supposedly for the greater good. For the greater good. What the Wilderness Act did was close the door to that argument. There was no logging, so there was no public benefit. So it got down to, in the Forest Service and the court systems were, were pressured into the issue of what is the public benefit elsewhere in the world then, elsewhere in the United States. At that time, a lot of uranium mining was happening, a lot of gold mining, a lot of oil development, and a lot of timber harvesting, a lot of recreation development that would impact sacred lands. If they were to allow that to continue, Native tribes, and we did aggressively assert that, hey, this dumping raw sewage on, on, on San Francisco Peaks has an impact on our ability to use that area. Navajos, Hopis, Zunis, you know, asserted that, that they couldn't use it if, if, you know, sewer water was dumped to make snow. We lost that case. So right now people go to San Francisco Peaks and ski on, on human waste. You know, that boggles my mind. You know, I can't understand that. Water becomes a significant issue. You know, how much water can, can we assert saying, hey, water is sacred, you know, and, and, and avoid the issue of quantification, you know, to, to say you can have a certain amount of money for this amount of water. Klamath River was a classic example of that. Mm-hmm. You know, 33,000 cubic acres of water would have been given away to the irrigation district. That boggles my mind. It's against the, the epistemology of tribal groups to take that position to sell water. Now we have with cap and trade, you know, another anthropocentric fallacy, if you will, that we can sell air. I mean, the Yurok tribe has sold air. That is so far removed from any kind of spiritual thinking that Native people might have because of a dollar value of it. 
you know, so no land is worth that much mm-hmm. you to, 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 to give up your birthright, if you will. So. Well, as you mentioned, this was a long time ago, as you mentioned earlier. But what sort of tactics did you utilize in this as you were moving forward in this method of activism or that you would recommend to current activists going through similar fights, similar battles? You know, we and and there is a, a large number of folks mobilizing people to understand the issue. And I think that's probably the best bet in terms of any type of, of significant legislation is how do you mobilize people's support? And oftentimes you have to move their thinking. Not everybody's willing to, to think differently. I mean, what we're saying about a different spiritual understanding is that your hopes and dreams for the last 40 years is wrong. You know, totally wrong. Your, your religious understanding is totally wrong. You know, that, that it's so compliant with corporate America that it does not, it cannot survive, you know, any longer, you know. And, 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 and by the impacts on the ecosystems, we have a short period of time to, for this to last, you know, by force or by choice. Either we have the, the intellectual and cognitive decision-making process that we can make a decision to change. Or we could run into that brick wall and be forced to change. Well, I think the answer is obvious. We're going to run into the brick wall, you know, and possibly have chaos like we've never experienced before. Systems are going to fail. Ecological systems, social systems, all of that's going to fail, possibly within our lifetime. I mean, the, 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 the trend, in, trend of scientific thought in climate change is if we don't make a decision in the next 10 years, it's going to be too late. You know, our grandkids will pay the price. So that's, that's, I think that's what's at stake here. We're, we're, we're in need of a massive social transformation that this society has never seen before. And it could be a positive one or it could be a very negative one. And is there a place people can learn more information about the No Go Road or the work you're doing now at Seventh Generation Fund? Oh, you know, I think there's a lot of initiative, a lot of places, you know, uh, mostly just do the research. But I think with the involvement with our, our bringing the issue to the Parliament for the World's Religions, looking at faith-based communities, because we know that rational thinking to the American public hasn't moved people very far. So is there a spiritual base that we can begin to move people's thinking. And the parliament brings together maybe ten or 12,000 people in one location to begin to move that thinking. And we're hopeful for that type of process. In general, you know, we can't talk to the American society about spirituality because we realize that there is a spiritual bankruptcy in American society that they don't hear it. There's no way of talking spiritual understanding to folks in Wall Street or folks are, are, are in their daily track in life. So we're hoping to take it to some spiritual people to maybe have a better understanding. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today and for telling us all about the history of the no-go road. Thank you. This has been the Econews Report. My name is Annie Maher, and I've been your host for the past half hour. 
My guest today was Chris Peters of the Seventh Generation Fund. You can find more information on the Econews page on khsu.org. If you have any questions or comments about this program, please call our listener comment line at 826-6089. If you'd like to replay this interview or share it with others, you can go to the KHSU archives at khsu.org. And we're also podcasting. You can subscribe to Econews Report on iTunes. The Econews Report is produced for KHSU, located at Humboldt State University in cooperation with the North Coast Environmental Center. Many thanks to Fred McLaughlin for engineering. Join us again here on KHSU for the next Econews Report.